0: Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor cars going off in the parking lot, (laughs) nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Whew. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, it would be good to pray now. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, again, to have come together as a church family to hear testimonies of how you're weaving us into your kingdom plan throughout the week, uh, like with first and second grade camp. We give you praise for a great time that everybody was safe that many kids come to know you better, many adults came to know you better. Lord, I'm grateful that we're together in this house, praising you. Would you reveal yourself to us, Lord? Would you shine your light upon us, Lord, in the next few minutes? Father, would you call our name? Would your voice be present? Would you bless our ears to recognize when you call our name, to know your voice, to hear and receive a word from you this morning? Lord, may your word sit upon our hearts and call us deeper and further into your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those friends that are not here this morning, those that are here and sick, those that are not here and sick, those that are here with burdens and those that are not here with burdens. Lord, I pray for our church family. I pray for our neighborhood. I pray for Leaf Summit. I pray for those neighborhoods and communities we represent all around the metro area, that your presence would be known that your spirit would break through, enter lives, and call their names. That when your voice is present, sickness is healed. Loneliness is clothed with comfort and presence. Father, we call upon you, the great comforter now, to be present not only with us, but all of those that we're thinking of, and even those that we're not thinking of. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series, six weeks in the temptation story of Jesus. Just by show of hands, I would be curious to know how many are familiar with the temptation stories of Jesus? Okay. I don't know. What would you say, Darren? 40%, 50% maybe? What'd you say? You weren't counting. Okay, okay. Well, it's a good thing I called on your wife and said, Darren. But thanks for answering, Derek. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. (laughs) Man, I'm wound up this morning. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, that's all right. Yeah. Was that about? You would go around sixty. Awesome. Okay. Well, the temptation stories of Jesus. We're going to get into them over six weeks. Starting first, though, with what happens before the temptation stories. But each week. We are going to read the totality of this story, and I am going to try to do my best to catch us up each week, because I know not all of us will be present each week, but we'll try to do a quick review, so that on the Sundays that you might miss, you can follow along. I am finding great power in these stories, and so this morning, I want to go right back to Scripture, and I want to read this morning the temptation story of Jesus for us, so if you're not familiar... You will be familiar in just a second. It's found in Luke chapter 4. It'll be up on the screens if you like to participate in that way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me. And I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. So, the great temptation, I wonder what you think about when you think about the great temptation. This morning, we're going to talk about the temptation stories in a particular avenue, in the avenue of prayer. What can we learn about prayer in the temptations of Jesus? So for six weeks, we're going to focus on this, and I think I have, yeah, there we go. So today, we're going to talk about beginning prayer, all right? So what do we learn about beginning to pray from the temptations of Jesus? Next week, we'll talk about preparation Then move into centering prayer around the story of bread. And then the fourth week, when Jesus is led to the mountain, and God says, I'll give, or God, the devil says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. We're going to explore what it looks like to pray for Caesar. Would you pray for me as I (laughs) preach on praying for Caesar? Uh, And then uh, the fifth week, Jesus is led up to a temple, and God says, or the devil says again, hey, I can give you all of the religions. You can be the religious guru. We're going to talk about praying for the church. And then in the sixth week, after Jesus was done in the desert, Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about ministering from a life of prayer. But today, we begin with beginning prayer. So when you think about the temptation stories, I wonder if you're like me, and you think about mustering up the strength to resist the devil and his uh, tempting temptations for 40 days, thinking, man, I've got to do better. <laughs> I've got to muster up the strength that it must take to resist the temptations to do bad things, whatever they may be. In this case, the bad things were turning rocks into bread, being the emperor for all the kingdoms, or being the religious guru for all of the churches and people of faith. Uh, these were the temptations, and, and Jesus had to be real strong in his spiritual power to resist the devil. I don't know about you, I can't ever say, Terry, that... I've ever faced the temptation to turn stones into bread (laughs) but I have faced the temptation of pornography and I don't know if those things are the same thing (laughs) but I don't know if I'm probably the only one in here that struggles with that but I do know what it is to be tempted to be tempted of things that I was raised not to do right to be tempted of things that I know are not right now there's not all of us are in here tempted with those things but there's other things And so for a moment, I don't want us to think about bread, mountains, and temples because that doesn't mean much to us. But the temptation to cuss out a coworker, that means something to a few, right? The temptations to tell someone what you think about them. The temptations to gossip. The temptations to use your eyes to look at things that do not honor God. Temptation to use our hands to hurt people or to do things, again, that do not honor God. Now these are things that we face. I want you to know, brother and sister, you're not alone. But when you think about the temptations that you face, whatever they may be, I may have mentioned them, I may not. When you think about those temptations, how do you think about defeating them? Do you think do you think in these terms, I just gotta be better? I just need to get another accountability partner. I need to surround myself with someone else to hold me accountable so I can be better. I'm just weak in this area. I'm not spiritually strong here. I need to spend some more time in worship and prayer and Bible study, and I've I got to get after it. Are you like me that when you hear the stories of the temptations of Jesus, you think about his success and your failure? You think about his ability to resist the tempting things of the world and your inability to do it. I think that there is way more going on in this story narrative than building up the spiritual muscles of believers. In other words, I think there's so much more going on here than do better. Be stronger. Pray harder. <laughs> stop doing that. Don't use your mouth in that way. I think there's more going on here. I want us to explore the temptations in this avenue. The great temptation, the greatest temptation, the greatest success of the devil's temptations would be for the devil to reduce the glory of God into a visible measure of control. So instead of looking at these as objects, objects in which I just named the things that we categorize as bad in our temptations to do those bad things removing that altogether if you can just use your powerful brain and erase that altogether not thinking temptations as 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 bad things but thinking about temptation as the switch of trust to where you do not have to trust God the Father in his presence, but you can trust yourself to produce the things and desires of your life that you need. The greatest temptation would be for the devil to reduce the glory of God into a visible measure of control. It's where Jesus has full control of human welfare, or Jesus has full control of politics. Jesus has full control of religion, and it's all within Jesus' control. This battle, this battle is not against flesh and blood, right? You know, familiar with that scripture? But against the powers and spirits, or powers and spirits and principalities of the darkness. The battle, in other words, is cosmic. Oh, Yeah. Let's think big here, right? If this was, if this was, if the Bible, if the Bible stories were all scientific, it would rip the mystery right out of them. Man, the Bible stories and the life of Jesus is absolutely fantastic and it's absolutely cosmic. This battle happening here in the desert is a battle of cosmic proportions. Something, something is trying to be decided here. And it's not just the physical strength of Jesus to resist bad things. Something else is happening here. What's at stake? I believe it is the faithfulness. It is the faithfulness to the identity God has called us to be. You have no idea how important that is, but it is. Hold on. I'll try to get to it. This is a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil. The question in this passage is very simple. Who's going to run this world? If the adversary can get us to reduce what God sees in us, if the adversary can somehow get us to reduce the fact that our call is cosmic, that our call comes from the heavens, that our identity is built by the breath of God, if the adversary, the devil, Satan, the enemy, whatever you want to call him, if the spiritual forces of evil can get us to reduce who God calls us, then we are on the hook for being strong enough to be good in this world. Then you're on the hook for making something of yourself. You're on the hook for the action that this world desperately needs. You're on the hook for justice. You're on the hook for purity. You're on the hook for welfare. See, if the devil can somehow get us to reduce the power of the spirit that is within us, then it becomes on us to be a good church. And I just don't know if we're good enough to be that good. Man, and I tell you, If the devil can get our teenagers to understand, it's easier to preach to teenagers, isn't it? Yeah, it's so much easier. Teenagers are the only ones that deal with pornography, okay? So let's believe that lie. It's so much easier to talk about the subject if you talk about someone else and not yourself. certainly not your pastor, If the devil can get us to reduce the power of God's miraculous healing that sits within us, And get us to think that the victory to pornography lies in reading a book. Or being faithful to your accountability group. Accountability groups are good. But when they become the only means to victory, we begin to think that the power to defeat whatever evil is at work in our lives. That's just one of many, many, right? The devil can get us to think that it comes from willpower, that it comes from spiritual might. Friends, the battle's already won. The temptations in the desert is not who's gonna be stronger, the devil or Jesus. No. Is Jesus gonna believe who he is? Is Jesus gonna rest in the connection to the Father through the Spirit? Is Jesus going to allow himself to share equal parts, humanity and divinity? Is Jesus going to listen to the call that comes from the Jordan River? You are my beloved son. Or is Jesus going to bite at the temptations and be like, ah, man, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries is going to fall off this map if I don't become the director of it. I have to feed all the people. And I've got to figure out the software. I don't understand the software. I've got to hire people. I don't know how to manage, but I've got to figure it out because everybody's welfare is on me. Or is Jesus going to run for office? Is Jesus going to bite the temptation? Is that to be a good Christian? is to be the best politician. Oh, boy. The temptations here are greater than if they're going to be strong enough. They're more at the root of identity. Is Jesus going to believe in who he is? So here it is real quick, and I'll try to speed this up because I'm so excited about what lies next. Man, I, may get, I just may get excited, okay? Here's what I believe I feel like I'm reading when I read the temptation stories. And I don't know, maybe the slide has been up for a minute. But the temptation, the great temptation here is to reduce our identity, to confuse the call so that we grasp at control and we work really hard to conquer evil things. If the devil can win in these areas, the devil will win over the human race. If the devil can get us, and by devil... If you want to talk about spiritual warfare later, we can. Okay? I'm just going to assume that we all know who the devil is. This is the bad. Okay. If the bad presence, the spiritual forces of darkness and evil, if the devil can get us to forget who we are, to confuse the calling that we all have, so that we grasp at control to fix the things that do need to be fixed, like welfare for all, there are problems in that category. Politics. Am I okay by saying that there's problems with politics? Okay, good. That's all I'll say today, right? There's problems there, and there's problems with the church. Am I okay if I say there's problems with the church? There's problems with the church, okay? If he... the. If the enemy can reduce our identity and confuse our call so that we grasp at control to fix the things that are obvious problems and to muster up the strength to conquer those so we can give them back to God and say, look what I did for the United States of America. Look what I've done for justice in the streets. Look what I have done for the church. Are you not so proud of me? The temptation is to carry the weight of the call upon your ability to perform. That's a weight that will kill every single one of us. It will kill you. If you're hearing me say today about pornography and you're thinking, man, man, that's my battle, I also want you to know that if you bite the temptation leaving these doors, that it's on your ability to perform, to never look at pornography again. Good luck, friend. Good luck. I don't believe this is what's happening here. I think it's greater, and I think it's better. It's kind of like a tightrope. Tight walk, Tightrope walking is anxious, right? Because you can't fail. What happens to this lady if she fails right here? What happens? She dies, right? So when faithfulness is linked to performance, it pressurizes love to the likeness of a tightrope. You can't get off the tightrope. You've got to prove the fact that you belong to the love of God. You've got to make it, friend. Don't fall off to the right. Don't fall off to the left. Just be perfect. That's all you've got to be. You have to walk out perfectly. And guess whose responsibility it is to hold the balance between right and wrong? You. (laughs) You're 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 laughing because you're either not following me or you are. (laughs) And you realize, and you're realizing with me. Man, maybe the greatest lie the devil has ever taught the church is that we need to work harder. We need to pray longer. We need to read more. Please don't confuse me. If we don't read the Bible, we don't pray. We don't attend church, you're going to lose your faith. But you don't have to control it, friends. It's not up to you to have every interpretation right in here. You know that, right? We'll get to that in a minute. The story of Jesus in the wilderness... Cannot be reduced to the moral strength to conquer temptations. It would be the adversary's goal, and I think I've beat this horse to death here. It would be the adversary's goal in reducing the meaning of this passage to become stronger, to do more, to fight harder. No, I think what's happening in this passage is Genesis stuff, it's beginning stuff. It's origin stuff. It's cosmic stuff. If Jesus knows who he is, then Jesus knows his capability. I want to rewind that back one more time. If Jesus knows who he is, then he knows his capability. Friends, if you know who you are, then you know your capability. If you don't know who you are, then you'll try harder to figure it out. If you know your floor, this is another way. Sometimes they talk about this in athletics. If you know your floor, then you're free to explore your ceiling. This passage actually doesn't start in Luke 4. It can be argued that this passage starts in the very beginning of Luke and is woven together with the story of incarnation and Jesus' birth in the manger. But I really want to pick up this story in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. I want to say that this story begins at the Jordan River. I want to, if you can picture with me, and I'm a visual guy, if you can picture with me, all right? Here is this story. Now, the battle for temptation does not start. The battle with temptation doesn't start in the wilderness. It starts with a man from Galilee that's standing in line with all the other people, standing in line waiting for baptism. There he is with all the other humanity, just like every other dude or every other gal. And you know what Luke is doing, right? Right? What Luke is doing here is absolutely intentional. Right after this passage, he's going to go to Jesus' genealogy. Right? and he's going to trace Jesus' genealogy not on his mother's side. He's going to trace his genealogy on his yeah, which isn't even his father. So why is Luke, <laughs> So why is Luke doing that? Luke is trying to connect Jesus to the very first human the Bible writes about. Not trying, he does. Look at the very end of chapter 3. If you've got your print Bibles with you, look at the very end of chapter 3. It's going to take me forever to find it. So is anyone looking at it? What does the very end of chapter 3 say? The son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. So Luke is connecting Jesus to who? To the first human being. Adam. Standing in line with everyone else awaiting baptism, Jesus is just like every other human being. So Luke's Christology here, the study of the person of Christ, is that Jesus is physically in flesh, the son of humanity. So here he is as a human being. Do you think he knows it in Luke? Do you think Jesus knows it? Or do you think his journey of sonship was developing all along in the temple. His mom and dad had lost him. It's been several days. They go back to the temple. And the only answer that this arrogant 12-year-old can say to his earthly dad, there's adopted parents in here. Can you imagine your adopted kid saying this to you? I had to be in my father's house, Joseph. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> that was the day the Son of Man got slapped. Yeah. <laughs> You think he was just figuring it out, right? Like, man, my heart longs. Do you think he actually knew? Or do you think in the, in the moment of flesh that God allowed him to be so much like the Son of Man that he took on everything it meant to be human? And so here he is, standing in line. I wonder if he's still figuring it out that he's a little bit different than just a normal human being. And then He's baptized. Luke says that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, meaning that the baptism started it for him, here is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It starts at what? The voice of God. Cosmic scene, right? The voice of God crashing through the heavens, breaking through the skies, descending upon the Son of Man like a dove. And what does this spirit say? This is my son. You're not just connected to Adam, dude. You are the son of man. You are the son of God. This is my beloved, the son of God. And so, temptation in the wilderness. It doesn't begin because Jesus struggles at the fingertips of a computer. Okay? It doesn't start there. It doesn't start with God being like, ooh, I want to see if Jesus can be perfect. So let's let's just see. Let's just test him. (laughs) No. The temptations, they start after Jesus already knows who he is. So it's not at the end of the temptations. It's not at the end, emerging from the desert saying, ha ha, I have shown humanity that I will never look at pornography. No. He doesn't emerge saying the three greatest temptations of power and control humanity has ever known, politics, church, and social justice. He doesn't emerge from the greatest temptations humanity has ever known, saying, look, Father, you happy? I proved myself. Am I the son of God now? No, he enters the wilderness formed and shaped and called. It's funny that Luke writes about the Jordan River. Because there's another calling story that happens earlier in Scripture with the number 40. Jesus goes through the waters of the Jordan River and starts his 40 days of wilderness, right? Who else goes through river waters and starts 40 years of a journey? The Bible begins with a picture of water Who comes down and orders that water? All right, God. God, cosmic, right? A cosmic story. A force breaks through earth. It begins to form the chaos of the waters. And you know why waters were chaotic in those times, right? Because there's no GPS, no map, right? And so when you went off into the deep waters, you were, you were done. You were gone. You were with the beast of the water. You could be swallowed up by Leviathan. So watch out. It's chaotic. You can't control the waters. Hurricanes, storms, you don't even know when they're coming. They just swell up and happen. So if you, can order, if you can order the waters, then you must be the creator above all other created matter. It's interesting that Luke begins the journey into the wilderness after Jesus comes up out of the water and a voice speaks to the waters as if it's being divided like the Nile. As if it's the tohu and bohu in Genesis 1 and 2. As if the Spirit of God is now hovering over the chaos of life. It is not the chaos that the wilderness orders. It is the voice of God that orders the chaos. The chaos of water is ordered when the Spirit breaks through the heavens. And chaos is ordered at the breakthrough of the Spirit. Not in the wilderness but in the spoken claim of the Father at baptism. You are mine. So Jesus is not sent into the wilderness to conquer the chaos. You with me on this? <laughs> Jesus is not sent into the wilderness so that he can defeat temptation, so that you can try harder to walk with him, so you can defeat it too. No. No. Jesus is sent into the wilderness to conquer the chaos, not to conquer the chaos, but to learn the order. Wilderness teaches us order. Wilderness is like the spirit hovering over our baptism, claiming to us, you are mine, do you trust me? Politics are mine, do you trust me? Justice is mine, and the poor matter. Do you trust me? Justice is mine, and the way we use our words to talk about ethnicity matters. Do you trust me? Or do you need to go figure it out on Facebook this afternoon and get everybody straight? The order is this. God created the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that God grants us now life and life eternal. This is the order. I created the world, Jesus, and I sent you. So now, go bless the world with faithfulness and life. So in this encounter, Jesus is rooted in his identity. And so this morning, I want to say, learning to pray from the wilderness, what do we learn about prayer? Is that it has to start in the right order. Do you know who you are? Are you praying to God to make you something? God, can you just make me stronger? I failed today. I just need to be stronger. God, would you forgive me? Do you know who you are? I don't think you need to remind God. So let me just go a little bit further. Jesus is rooted in his identity. He is Son of God. He is Son of Adam. The Messiah is linked to humanity from its very origin Adam. Then Jesus is led to the very place Adam's race could not conquer. Adam's race could not conquer the wilderness because Adam's race could not settle their identity. What happened to the Israelites in the wilderness? They constantly wondered if who they were, right? It's funny that Jesus is sent to the very same place that the Israelites could not do. Jesus is sent, not so he can be spiritually strong, but so he can decide once and for all who humanity, <coughs> excuse me, who humanity belongs to. Identity is ordered in Jesus the Christ, who though tempted never wavered in obedience. He never wavered in faithfulness. He never wavered in love. He was free to rise and ascend to the call of God. In Christ, we are more than conquerors of adversity. Romans chapter 8, I read it earlier. We are more than conquerors We are sons of God with whom we are baptized into the family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now we are free to ascend to the worthiness of our call. No more tight ropes. Our purpose is to grow in the image God created in us, in the love that God has placed us, in the freedom that God has granted us. The point isn't to be spiritually strong, but to trust in the breakthrough of the Spirit. Oh, friends, do you trust that God is breaking, has broke through the chaos of your life and has already ordered it and is calling you to accept that order that he is in control? And now we're free to live in wonder and to go make disciples. Our purpose in life begins at call our purpose in life begins at the call not after we've conquered the temptation so if you're waiting to hear a word from god it starts at call not after you've proven yourself if you're waiting to serve others it starts at the call not after you have enough money if you're waiting if you're waiting to volunteer at a position at the church because you're waiting to be more pure Your call does not begin at you proving to me or anyone else that you are the most pure of our congregation. It begins at the call. Do you know who you are? It begins at breakthrough. Jesus is first called by identity, then he's led to wilderness. The wilderness brings clarity to the vocation, not proof of belonging. The quest of life's deepest meaning takes place in response to the call of God to the breakthrough of the spirit descending upon us in our response to ascend to his call so I just Caleb you can come I, this is an important phrase to me this week it's not about falling friends it's about rising so I want to give you a different image it's not about tight rope right make sure you prove yourself now be strong get stronger about the freedom. We have to rise to the call that breaks in from the heavens above. You see, if the proof of love is below us, then the floor, man, is really, really narrow, and we have to prove ourselves. But man, If what's decided on the floor level is that you are a child of God, that you are God's beloved, that you are worthy because God made you worthy through the blood of his son, through the resurrection of Jesus, then the floor is wide, man, real wide and real firm. And all you have left now is to explore who you are in the freedom of Christ. Our journey with Jesus is not like a tightrope. Man, this is good news, friends, but it's more like a hot air balloon. You see, don't you see this image here? I like hot air balloons because they're really kind of free to go wherever they want to go, right? And you see, I'm sure they've got navigation, right? But from the ground, it doesn't really look like that. It just kind of looks like they go with the wind, (laughs) They just kind of go. There's no tightrope, right? They're just free. And I don't think they would want to go outside the atmosphere, but they're really as free to go as high as they want to go, right? They can just explore. See, here's the difference, right? The difference when we reframe wilderness from being the temptations that we have to prove that we're strong enough to belong to just accepting and ascending to the call of God the Father. Our personal freedom does not begin in the heavens, controlling our own destiny. It's up to us to walk the tightrope to perfect performance. But no, we begin at the floor, upon the sand of the Jordan banks, beneath the power of the Almighty, awaiting the gift of the Spirit to descend upon us and call us forward. Our freedom is purchased by Christ. It is in the ascent... To the loving call of the Father, our vocation is in the way we will rise and respond to the call of God. It's the way you rise, not how narrow you can walk. The call of God upon Jesus cuts the chaos of disorder and gives freedom to the rise, it sets the order and opens eternity. Oh, friends, and prayer, prayer is the vehicle of our ascent. Prayer is the hot air balloon that allows us to explore the freedom of God's love. Prayer is a conversation between us and God, between our purpose and God's intention for us. Prayer wouldn't be very fun if you thought through prayer you had to get God to convince you that you were his. It would almost feel like there was no God at all, right? If the job of prayer was to get God to do the things that you need him to do so that you could believe in him, it wouldn't be very much fun, would it? Because the holocaust happened. God must not be real at all. Prayer is not about getting us to get God to do what we want. Prayer is the very vehicle that we ascend to the call that is is for all. It is for all. It is for all. It is for everyone. The call comes to every child comes to every person, comes to all of creation. The call of the cosmic, powerful force of heavens comes breaking through the clouds and calls us all. The call is for each one of us, and prayer is how we ascend. We don't have to wait for the chaos of your family, of your children, of your habits, of your work of your life. You don't have to wait for chaos to be ordered. It has been ordered. It was ordered at the call of God to Jesus Christ on the Jordan banks. This is not about how we conquer the flesh, as if it was up to us. This is the story of faith in Jesus Christ who has conquered flesh. Prayer begins with identity. And the key to learning how to pray is not by being thrown into the fire, but by learning identity, responding to the call of the Spirit, to the talk of your heart. Jesus first learns his identity, and then he's driven into the wilderness. The power of Jesus' victory over temptation comes through obedience. And obedience is established in the foundations of identity. If there be any hope, For us, in the battle of temptation, for the things I mentioned, for the things I didn't mention, the battle of spiritual forces and the darkness of evil, it must first begin with responding to the call and ascending in the love of the Father. So friends, you have been set free, not because you've proven yourself, but because God has proven himself. You have been set free to ascend to the worthiness of your call. May I pray for you. Lord, I pray for this congregation that today, perhaps even boldly, once and for all, that we would understand, Lord, that we are worthy. And that is grace. And that is mercy. And there's not one thing that anyone else here has done to be called worthy of being a son of God, of a daughter of God, but they certainly are. Lord, we give you great praise for what you have done. And you've called our name, Lord. Now we're free to ascend. How we rise to you will look different for each individual in this room, but we're free to pursue our call now. Oh, God, I pray, Lord, that as we pray throughout the rest of this week, that we pray to a father as a son, that we pray to the father as a daughter, that we pray to you as one that belongs, not one trying to force their way in. Oh, God, set us free set us free from the temptation to think that we have to walk the straight and narrow all by ourselves. Instead, give us the joy, the joy, the joy, the joy that comes with ascending to you in whatever path you would call us. Lord, may joy reign over our hearts and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and with us With each other, may joy reign in us. We are free to take off. We are free to ascend. We are free to become the people of God you've always called us to be. We don't have to do everything perfect. We don't have to win over every single person. We just have to walk in the free ascent to the identity in which you've called us to, Lord. We are free in you. We are free indeed. Praise be to God. In your name we pray. Amen. You're helping me with communion. Can you come forward?